This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Culture and Everyday Life podcast produced by the Elphinstone Institute at the University of Aberdeen. The Elphinstone Institute is a centre for the study of ethnology, folklore and ethnomusicology with a research and public engagement remit covering the North East and North of Scotland. Through interaction with researchers and practitioners, this podcast explores cultural phenomena in everyday life. This recording of the 2016 David Buchan Lecture comes from the Elphinstone Institute archives. It was delivered by Valdemar Hafstein, Professor in the Department of Ethnology, Folklore and Museum Studies at the University of Iceland. Since completing his PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, in 2004, he has published a number of articles and edited volumes on folklore, intangible heritage, international heritage politics, cultural property and copyright in traditional knowledge. His work has been translated into French, Italian, Portuguese, Croatian and Danish. Valdemar is former president of the International Society for Ethnology and Folklore, CF, and a former chair of the Icelandic Commission for UNESCO. His lecture, Copywriting Tradition in the Internet Age, Creativity, Authorship and Folklore, explores the entanglements between creativity, authorship, digital culture and copyright law. The lecture's abstract reads as follows. Should we copyright culture? How can one compose a 100-year-old traditional lullaby? Who owns Cinderella? And what would the Brothers Grimm say? What is the historical provenance of such catch-22s? While we may not resolve them in this talk, the lessons we learn from unpicking them can inform our thinking about creativity and agency in contemporary culture. In 1844, Hans Christian Andersen accused the Brothers Grimm of stealing his tale, The Princess and the Pea. That Andersen elsewhere attributes this tale to oral tradition, he heard it as a child, seems not to preclude it from becoming something that others could steal from him. Bizarre. Actually, it's not such an unusual story, and the United Nations even has a special committee negotiating a new international convention that addresses such appropriations of traditional culture and traditional knowledge in music, in medicine, in visual and verbal art. Beginning with the paradoxical case of a traditional lullaby that acquired a composer late in its life and fell into copyright, this talk grapples with representations of creative agency, such as authorship and tradition, that are endowed with the force of law through the copyright regime. My motivation is to understand the dichotomies that shape understandings of creativity so that we will be better placed to undermine them, to liberate our imagination from their powerful hold, and to imagine creativity in alternative terms. In a digital age, such acts of liberation and imagination are badly needed. Creativity is still enclosed in categories from another era, and bogged down by the weight of 19th century romantic ideals about the author. Since giving the Buchan Lecture in 2016, Valdemar has published two books and released a documentary film on subjects related to the lecture. 
Making Intangible Heritage, El Condor Pasa and Other Stories from UNESCO was published in 2018 by Indiana University Press, and Patrimonialities, Heritage versus Property was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020, co-authored with Martin Skiersdrup. His documentary film The Flight of the Condor, A Letter, A Song and the Story of Intangible Cultural Heritage, co-produced with filmmaker Aslaug Einar's daughter, has been screened at numerous film festivals and conferences worldwide and is available in open access online. His next book, Copywriting Tradition, Unknown Authors and the Voice of the Folk, is under contract with Indiana University Press. The recording begins with a short presentation on the Elphinstone Institute's work by director Dr. Thomas McCain. This is followed by some introductory remarks by the then University of Aberdeen principal, Professor Sir Ian Diamond. Good evening, everyone. Oh, you all sit up. Wow. Must be very loud out there then. Uh, welcome to the second annual David Buchan Lecture, uh, founded in memory of the folktale and ballad scholar. Uh, David Buchan, I'll tell you more about him in a minute, but first of all, I want to tell you a little bit about the Elphinstone Institute. Many of you will know what we do, but some of you won't. Um, so I want to just give you a brief outline of our remit. Uh, we were founded in 1995 as part of the quincentenary celebrations to build a bridge between the university and the community by researching and promoting and celebrating the culture of the northeast of Scotland and the north. We study culture in context through the disciplines of ethnology and folklore, and fundamentally that means individual experience, families and communities, talking to people, uh, individuals about their experience, how they make their way through the world. And I like to think of folklore, that is uh, the kinds of human culture that we come up with, oral traditions and, and customs and practices are all ways of making sense of the world around us as we move through it and trying to uh, control what we can in some way uh, of the world around us, some, many things which can't be controlled, such as last Tuesday's events, uh, which I tried to control through various verbal charms and so on, but it didn't work. At any rate, folklore and ethnology can tell us uh, not so much what happened, but what people thought about it and how they felt about it. And that has great significance, I think, for how we, uh, how we perceive the world and how we perceive human history. So we do this, as I said, through talking to people. Um, this is my colleague Francis Wilkins talking to a Cree fiddler in James Bay, Ontario, about Scottish fiddle traditions that have been uh, going native, so to speak, in, in Ontario for the last 150 years and acquiring a, a, a different kind of dialect than they have over here. We teach as well. We have um, students on a field school here um, we teach ethnology and folklore, and any of you who might be interested in a degree, our youngest graduate was 23 and our oldest was 83. So don't feel that you shouldn't apply for an MLIT as soon as possible. Have a word with me afterwards. We also publish um, ethnology and folklore materials, so the results of our research uh, in books like this and in articles as well, academic journals and so on. But a large part of our remit is public engagement, that is, taking our work out and learning from the people in the Northeast here and shaping our research around their interests, their concerns, their questions, and that sort of thing. So I wanted to just summarize a few of the themes that we talk about. One of them would be renewal. This is the Boaties Project, founded by my predecessor, Ian Russell, 
outside Peterhead where they build model boats, and we decided to set up a series of workshops to learn to make these model boats. And everybody said there'll be no interest, but we had uh, probably 10 times the number of people that we could take on the workshops. And here you see one of the older people giving of his knowledge and experience to the younger people. So we try to encourage renewal of cultural traditions. We explore the ideas of negotiation, where people who burn large objects in streets have to deal with the policing and insurance systems of the modern world. So they have to negotiate um, how this is going to work. Uh, negotiations between the people who burn the clavy in Berghead on the north coast and the police and uh, council officials who have to look after the safety of their citizens. Turns out that the people who burn the clavy have at least 500 years of knowledge about how not to get burnt, so they're quite good at it. Um, so there's this constant negotiation between um, tradition and, um, and authority. Uh, I, I hesitate to call it modernity because that implies that tradition is always old, and it isn't. Tradition is always renewing itself and changing, and the clavy too, although it is broadly speaking 500 years old, has evolved over the years in various ways. Sustenance, we like to support traditions where we can, and this is the traditional singing weekend at Kalerli, again founded by my predecessor Ian Russell. Three days of unaccompanied singing, which to many sounds like a nightmare, but in fact it's, it's actually lovely. And it's three or four different venues within this Kalerli farm park to the west of Aberdeen here, where people can go and, and tell stories through songs and talk about songs. Um, it's, it's a lot like the song tradition probably used to be a couple of hundred years ago with people sitting around talking through songs and singing a few verses and explaining some bit of the story they didn't understand. Somebody else contributes another verse. So it's a lovely sort of organic uh, setting in which to take part in the singing tradition of, of the Northeast, which is one of the richest in the world. Tradition evolves, as I said. From old to new, on the left there we have some neepy lanterns, and on the right there some plastic accoutrements um, for Halloween costuming. Uh, I just did a talk on the origins of Halloween in San Francisco a week ago, and explained to them that they didn't invent it, but in fact it started off here and in Ireland, and then went over there, uh, and things got too unruly. Apparently all the mischief and tricks in the 1930s were getting out of hand, and so the authorities introduced this idea of of trick-or-treating for candy and try to make people behave themselves. Um, although I'm not sure getting hyped up on sugar is the best way to do that. Uh, social resilience. We also think about how tradition and how uh, knowledge, traditional knowledge, can build community and build social resilience in a community and in individuals. These are a couple of boat building projects here in the Northeast where young people and older people get together, learn skills from each other by, by imitation and observation uh, as well as instruction. And it builds a kind of um, teamwork that you really have trouble building another way. You know, when you, when you watch somebody really closely, you learn to shape a piece of wood by feel and experience rather than by instruction and reading their IKEA instructions about where the shelf goes. Um, it's a whole different way of learning. And it builds a kind of, it inbuilds a kind of self-confidence and a confidence in your community, in your tradition, in your neighbors that go a long way to uh, increasing social stability, we feel. Education and future-proofing. We've been part of a project at Banff Academy where they have boat building as well, but we also take folklore methodology into the school at Banff Academy 
and uh, teach the students how to do some oral history work. They do a project over the Easter break, and then we facilitate them turning it into different things like Facebook posts or internet sites or little uh, concerts or performances, something like that. We also have um, Shona Donaldson, the wonderful singer from Huntley, uh, going into Banff Academy this autumn, uh, teaching them some very local songs. Again, that connecting people with their local regions and, and areas is very important for increasing confidence and therefore uh, ability to move through the world, I think. Finally, a few words about David Buchan. Um, as I mentioned, a ballad and, and uh, legend scholar. Um, he uh, was the first director designate of the Elphinstone Institute uh, with a broad interest in folklore. Um, he um, unfortunately passed away before he was able to take up the post. And we've founded this lecture really to show the diversity of work that uh, ethnology and folklore can do and is engaged with. Last year, we talked about medical legends and the, the transmission of, of oral traditions about disease and how that can inform how health authorities and the World Health Organization and so on can react to, um, to disease outbreaks. This year, we're talking about copyright. We're talking about tradition, what it means, and who owns it. Uh, but before that, just to introduce our speaker, I will introduce the principal of our university, Sir Ian Diamond, to just say a few words in welcome to our speaker. Gothandain, Valdemar, Seidelog, Blessetur, and I'll now do it in Doric. Um, but could I just also take this opportunity to welcome you all to this lecture? I know that you're going to enjoy it. Can I, before I say a few words uh, about the Elphinstone Institute, from my view, just apologize to everyone um, when I've already spoken to Valdemar uh, and explained why I have to leave more or less straight away after these opening remarks, and that is because many, many, many months ago I agreed to chair a question time in the university uh, the day after the American election. When I knew this lecture was taking place, I did go back to the uh, American authorities and asked if they could change the date of the election so that I could listen to the Buchan lecture. But sadly, I was unsuccessful um, in that uh, activity, so um, I do have to um, leave. Uh, but that is a great pity to me because I would love to listen to this lecture. I do think the Elphinstone Institute is an incredibly important part of the university. I think a university that is not proud of its place, not proud of the culture of its place, and not proud of, of the place of culture in um, a, a, an institution of this sort is not the kind of institution that we as a community would want it to be. Uh, and I'm always very proud of the work that Tom does. And it is incredibly important that we're, we, are, we are not only proud uh, of our Northeastern culture, but that we are prepared to celebrate it and to um, go around the world celebrating. I know Tom did a fabulous job uh, singing with some alumni in San Francisco just a couple of weeks ago. And I think it's incredibly important um, that our alumni across the world remember and recognize what the Elphinstone Institute does. I was a I will not spend any more time on the Elphinstone Institute because I think Tom has given a fantastic overview of the very many things that it does. For my part, uh, it is something that I'm very proud of and will continue to be. I also think that the whole issue of culture, uh, particularly um, when one can 
um, switch on uh, a computer or a smartphone and find about anything in the world is something that we actually need to really consider because it seems to me if we are not proud of our culture uh, and, not, and do not try to look after it, it will disappear. When I was brought up in South Devon, um, I could hardly understand uh, the words that were spoken when we went to Dartmoor. Um, now, Dartmoor is entirely populated by London bankers uh, who have second homes there. Um, and there is no such thing as a Dartmoor dialect that is distinct from the King's Kurzweil dialect that I uh, was brought up in. I don't believe that is the case uh, up here in the Northeast, and we must do everything we can to retain that, as is my view, because um, I, while I believe in an organic change in cultures, um, I um, do not believe that organic change means vanilla across the world, and that is something that if we're not careful, I think we will get, and that is why. Uh, I welcome Valdemar to give um, his lecture because it does seem to me that we need leadership uh, and understanding of, of how to move forward. And I personally, having read Valdemar's um, biography, can think of no one uh, better to speak about this whole agenda of copywriting tradition in the internet age. It is a truly stellar um, CV which includes um, a PhD from one of the great universities of the world. Um, sadly, not this one, um, but uh, California Berkeley, which of course aspires to be the University of Aberdeen. Um, and um, then uh, an absolutely wonderful um, set of not just great research, but real impact through work through UNESCO, through um, work um, with um, all kinds of organizations. So, Valdemar, we're incredibly privileged to have you here tonight. I thank you so much for finding time in what I know will be an unbelievably busy diary to come and talk to us. And we're looking forward very much to listening to you this evening. You're very welcome. Well, thank you for that very generous introduction, and thank you for inviting me. I'm honored to be asked to give, uh, to give the David Buchan Lecture. Happy to be in Aberdeen, and so very pleased to be here at the university at the invitation of Tom and the Elphinstone Institute. My only regret is that I didn't realize where the principal was brought up before expressing to him my great support for the Scottish team in tomorrow night's big game. Uh, the Elphinstone Institute is truly an intellectual oasis. Now let me show you what I mean. Or not, let's see. What you should be seeing on screen, I'll just act it out, right, finger guys. What you should be seeing on screen is an incredibly impressive map of 220 departments of ethnology and folklore spread across the European continent, from the south to the north, the west to the east. It's a richly represented field at European universities, but the Elphinstone is one of two in the UK, both of them right here in Scotland. As such, it really has unique value and is tremendously important to the field as a whole and will remain so even after Brexit. Uh, that's just to underscore its international significance. 
Nationally, I know that it plays a leading role in scholarship on tradition, everyday life, heritage, music, and ethnography. And locally, it's exemplary in its public engagement, fulfilling that very special charge of our field, ethnologists and folklorists, to maintain modern society's reflexive and historical self-consciousness. Now, CF, whose logo you would also be seeing above that map, if it were on the screen, is uh, the International Society for Ethnology and Folklore. And it brings together some 1,000 scholars in the field from all over Europe and beyond. And in addition to a large international congress held every two years, uh, CF has 14 thematic working groups organized around particular research interests. And earlier this year, Tom and the Elphinstone Institute welcomed one of the most active groups, CF's working group on the ritual year, and organized a very successful conference here in Scotland, in Findhorn, did I just murder that place name? Okay. Now the society now looks very much forward to the Elphinstone Institute hosting the CF summer school for doctoral students of ethnology and folklore from the north and south and east and west of Europe in 2018. And although the principal has just left, let me say this for the record and the film, that we are counting on the principal's active support for that. Now, after that brief commercial interlude, let me return to the reason you came here tonight, copywriting tradition. Now, when the time came for Athena to be born, Hephaestus split open the head of Zeus with a hammer. Athena stepped out in full armor. The modern idea of the author and his work mirrors this asexual genesis of Athena. With great pain in a violent flash of inspiration and creativity, and perhaps with some help from a Hephaestus-like editor, the author creates the novel or the work of art alone. It's his brainchild. In contrast, in punishment for assisting, assisting Zeus in covering up one of his sexual escapades, Hera made the nymph echo unable to speak any thoughts of her own, leaving her only the ability to repeat the last words spoken by others, condemning her to eternal repetition, beautiful but redundant. The modern idea of folk tradition reflects Echo's fate. It's a fate shared in modern times by the bearers of folk tradition, the objects of ethnography, and the voices lurking behind the texts and folktale collections. The fate of Echo aptly captures this long dominant view of their creative capacities, or the lack thereof, and the evaluation of their words, beautiful but redundant. Now I'll come back to the Greeks but for now, just make a mental note of Athena and Echo and Hephaestus and his creative hammer. to shut him off, right? When you listen to Peter Gabriel on your gramophone, you were playing a copy. You were not making one. When your fingers summoned or summoned Furia Lisa from the piano keyboard, 
you were performing the piece, not copying it. That's still true, of course, if you play the piano or if, you, if you're a vinyl buff. But by and large, the sound of music has gone digital. And in the digital age, culture has entered a condition where every playback, every act of consumption creates a new copy. Every time you view an image online, you create a copy in your computer's cache, whether you want to or like it or not. Of course, if you like, there's a lot you can do with that. The digital condition fosters new forms of creativity, musical, visual, textual, whatever the medium. New forms that rely on copying, remixing, and tinkering, on touch-ups and mash-ups. I was asked beforehand if my, any of my slides had any copyright implications. Uh, well, all of them do actually in one way or another. But here you see a, a, one of my favorite mashups that was viral a couple of years back, uh, bringing together Der Untergang and, and uh, Gangnam style, right? Untergangnam. So the digital condition also occasions innovative forms of sociability, known as sharing. It allows for, for various creative expressions and practices, playful and serious, collaborative, distributed, incremental, building on other expressions that in turn build on other expressions that build on other expressions, and so on. As a consequence of this digital revolution, people's ordinary cultural consumption, everyday cultural consumption, has moved into the orbit of copyright law in an entirely new way. Everyday cultural practices involve making copies all the time, remixing and sharing in ways that really strike to the core of our ideas of authorship and creativity and what is involved. One radical consequence of the digitization of the cultural sphere perhaps the most radical and the most under-acknowledged, is the return to center stage of models of creativity and sociability that we usually associate with traditional culture. As we tend to think of it, tradition is based on sharing. As a vernacular form of artistic communication, its creative dynamics involve remixing, tinkering, touching up, and mashing. Tradition is peer-to-peer, -peer. it's distributed, it's collaborative, it's cumulative, and it's collective. Some communication scholars even claim that what we're witnessing is the end of a brief interlude in history, one in which for a handful of decades, or maybe a few centuries, cultural forms were broadcast from centers of production to readers, listeners, and viewers at their peripheries. Thomas Petit refers to this as the Gutenberg parenthesis, a relatively short period of exception in cultural history. Now, things are returning to normal, to how they've always been in human history. We're back to sharing among peers, to horizontal networks of communications that are taking the place temporarily held by the vertical relation of cultural industries to consumers. Of course, that's oversimplifying by a lot. It's not like the traditional vernacular culture and communication ever went away. 
It's been there all along, coexisting with the printing press, the media, and the cultural industries. And it's not like those industries are grinding to a halt either, though you might be forgiven for thinking so, considering how loudly they complain. It's just that they don't have the dominant position that they used to. But even with this caveat, in its broad strokes, I think the idea of the Gutenberg parenthesis helps to drive home an important point. Seen from this perspective, digital culture continues the traditional, the traditional culture and vernacular communication between peers that throughout history has characterized most cultural production and consumption, where every act of creation is an act of creative appropriation, a reuse of another creative act that precedes it, a remix, if you will, whether it's singing a song or telling a story or building a boat. Digital culture, of course, turns to this end technologies that open up new possibilities for creativity and collaboration. Lawrence Lessig, professor of law and father of the Creative Commons movement, refers to this as the return of read-write culture, replacing a temporary separation of the practice of reading, as in read-only file, read-only from writing. Digital culture is read-write, like traditional culture, which is also read-write or hearsay. So, good news all around, right? The creative public builds a cultural democracy using digital technologies. The bastions of the cultural field are like, like the last Bastille that we still hadn't stormed. Bring your pitchfork, your sledgehammer, your laptop. The only problem with all of this, you see, is that the laws we have weren't built for it. The law of copyright is a Gutenberg law. It's made to control the circulation of read-only culture. Copyright has no conception of traditional culture, except as a commons, the remainder left over by copyright. And when it comes to creativity that is distributed and cumulative, collaborative and collective, its usefulness soon runs thin. Its whole conception of the creative act is centered on the figure of the author, the artist or the composer the individual creator and his individual work. Instead of encouraging creativity as it's supposed to do, as it was made to do, the effect of copyright under current circumstances can be and often is to inhibit new forms of creativity, to, as it were, delay the closing of the parentheses. Now let me illustrate. I brought a prop. What you're hearing is a melody collected from folk tradition at the end of the 19th century. You'll be hearing it again, I promise. It's found among the manuscripts of the principal collector of Icelandic folk music, the Reverend Bjartni Thostensson, and he published this melody in his magnum opus on Icelandic folk songs from 1906. The Reverend tells his readers that of all the traditional melodies he heard as a boy, this song is the most memorable. I picked it up, he says, at an early age and often sang it in those days. The poem, he adds, is common currency. 
The Reverend Bjarni Thorstensson was a prolific collector and student of traditional music, and his collection is really magnificent. His sense of rhythm, however, or I should say his notation practices, were substandard, and not just in retrospect. He transcribed every melody the same way, all in common time. That is to say, in the basic time signature of four force, the most common in the classical and the church music of the time. Now, we know for certain that this is not the way most of the tunes were actually sung. Two decades later, the next great collector of Icelandic folk music stepped forward, composer, collector, and music scholar Jón Leifs. In 1928, you see him here sitting on the steps with a singer, he toured the country and he was the first to use a revolutionary new technology, sound technology, to record Icelandic folk music, the walk cylinder. Three years prior, in 1925, he gave a public piano concert in his living room where he played his own arrangement of three tunes from the Reverend's collection of Icelandic folk songs. And the performance was a phenomenal success. One of these songs, called Hani Krummi Hundur Svín, Rooster, Raven, Dog and Pig, was picked up by every choir in the country from that year to this day, and is still hummed and or whistled by every child in Iceland aged three or more. Now here's a recent performance to give you an idea. Hani krummi hundur svín hestur mús titlingur galar kunkar geltir hring reggjar tistir singur. The second song that he performed, Sumri Hatlar, Summer's Almost Gone, was also a hit and is still performed fairly regularly by choirs and classical soloists. The third one, didn't make as much of a splash in the pool of popular music. The older generation, however, was well familiar with it. It was the melody you just heard on the music box, set to the lyrics that Reverend Bjatni noted down for it. Enkin lawi öðrum frekt, don't give blame too easily. In the following decades, this third tune dropped out of oral tradition. We can be fairly certain of that because when systematic collection efforts resumed, in the 1960s and 70s, not one informant ever sang this once very popular song into the folklorist tape recorders. In those same 1960s, however, another composer named Jón Ausgersson took a course for music teachers. And as part of the courseworks, coursework, he arranged a folk song for all the teachers gathered there to sing together. He flipped open the Reverend Bjatni's collection from 1906, and from its pages, he selected our song, all right? This one here. His arrangement, however, departs from the notation of the good reverend in several ways, most of them minor, but four of them worth noting. First, like Jon Leif's before him, he changed the meter from common times to four-fourths, uh, common time or four-fourths, to the time signature of 4434424424. And in so doing, we might say he really undid the reverend's rearrangement into common time and shifted the melody back to a rhythm that was actually traditional. This is the same rhythm as you just heard that choir perform, a rhythm that was actually in tradition. And this is the same time signature to which Jon Leifs set the big hit, this biggest hit from his living room concert. Now, second thing that Jonas Gerson did, arranging this song for the 
for the music teachers to sing was to shift around a few notes at the end of the tune. Again, in keeping with standard practice in the folk musical tradition, where singers would embellish or flourish the end of each verse. Third, he replaced the lyrics that the Reverend Bjartne had noted with another traditional poem, one about lost love and heartbreak, often attributed to Rosa Gvimenstotir, or Rosa from Water's End, who passed away in 1855. Once again, we might say that in this, Jon helps to move the song out of the reverend's notation and into something that more closely resembles oral tradition. Particular melodies in oral tradition were never associated with particular lyrics. The lyrics were interchangeable, or the melodies were interchangeable for the lyrics, if you like. One way to put this is to say that performers had the poems in one side of their brain and the tunes on the other side, and then they matched them together according to whim or occasion. This is traditional culture at work, by the way. This is read-write culture, or hearsay. This is creativity on the outside of the Gutenberg parenthesis. This is a mashup. It's normal. This is how we usually operate. The dynamics of traditional culture are those of the riff or the remix. Now, in Jon Auskissen's arrangement, however, the song is even named for the particular lyrics that he chose and for their poet, Visur Vassendarosu the poems of Rosa from Water's End. The fourth and final important way in which Jon Auskissen, his arrangement departs from the Reverend's notation matters most. After the folk melody has been sung through once and before it is repeated again, he added a bridge, a contrasting B section, if you will. So instead of the traditional AAA structure, where the same tune is sung over and over and over again with minor variations, his arrangement has an ABA structure, where A is in the minor key and B is in the major. Now in composing the bridge or the B section, Joauskiewicz nevertheless stayed very close to the musical phrasing of folk tradition. In fact, the B section sounds very much like two other folk songs on the next page of the Reverend's collection. So this is how, I'll let you hear now, how Jon Auskissen's arrangement sounds, performed by the choir of Hamrarhith College, my alma mater. section you're hearing now, right in the major key.
This is how I first encountered the song in 1990 during my very brief musical career singing bass with a school choir. In the first two and a half or three decades after Jonauskesson arranged the melody, it led a pretty unremarkable existence as part of the Icelandic choral repertoire. It was released occasionally on records featuring choir music or classical female soloists accompanied by piano, eight times in all, in each case, strictly following Jon Auskissen's notation, arrangement. But then, shortly after I first heard it and sang it in 1990, the tune hit the big time. No thanks to me, I'm afraid. It broke out of the choir room and into popular tradition once again, this time as a lullaby. It entered the nursery room and the preschools, and then on the wings of the world music folk revival of the 1990s and 2000s, it was propelled into pop music, tourist productions, radio airtime, advertising, and even the silver screen. A full century after the Reverend Bjarni Thostesson collected the tune of folk tradition, 65 years after the composer-collector Jung Leifs performed his piano arrangement of the song in his living room concert, and three decades after Jon Auskissen arranged the song for a choir of music teachers. After all these years, it was at long last and suddenly a big hit. Now the reason I'm telling you all this is what comes next. So in 1995, Jon Auskesson, our composer who arranged this for the choir of music teachers, attended the premiere of a feature-length film about the life of Jon Leifs, the one who gave it in his living room concert in 1925, about his life and his musical career. Good film if you have a chance to come across it at some point. It's, uh, it's a fairly adventurous or rather eventful life, married into a Jewish family in Germany in the 1930s, and, and all that come, felt, felt came from that. And the music is good, and you'll have recognized the music in the trailer. Our melody is a leitmotif in the film score, which was arranged and in part composed by yet another prominent Icelandic composer, 
Hjálmar H. Ragnarsson, this gentleman here. Now at the time, Hjálmar Ragnarsson was the chairman of the Isla Association of Icelandic Artists. He later became the chancellor of the Icelandic Academy of Arts. So in other words, all these composers are very big players on the cultural scene in the country. Now as the final credits for the film rolled over the screen, our song appeared listed as a folk song. And this is where the plot thickens. Jón Ausgesson left the film in a hurry, film theater in a hurry that night feeling cheated. When he came home, he wrote an open letter to his colleague, Hjalmar Ragnarsson, who had scored the film. The letter was published the very following morning as Jón Ausgesson happened to also be the main music critic for the biggest newspaper in the country. It was, followed, it was published the very following morning and it accuses Ragnarsson of outright theft, an indignity of artistic proportions. A polemic ensued and it involved not only these two composers, but several other parties. Other composers, the film directors, the lawyers, their family members even. Auskesson referred the matter to Iceland's music rights organization, collective music rights organization called STEF. And it was a tough spot for the managers of, of STEF to find themselves in. Thrown in the middle of a no-holds-barred public fight, between two of its most respected senior members, Jón Ausgesson and Hjalmar Ragnarsson, where not only their rights, but also their honor was at stake. A fight that ironically revolved around a film about the composer who had personally founded the music rights organization, Stiff, in 1948, our friend Jón Leifs, who had worked harder than anyone else to secure the place of copyright in Icelandic music to create a steady source of income for composers. Jón Leifs was legendary for actually stopping funerals where music was performed without permission and payment of royalties. Now, as you know, Jón Leifs worked extensively with folk songs in the first half of the 20th century. But what I have yet to add is that Jón Leifs never had any qualms about registering these works in his own name and claiming full copyright in them. Of course, this was common practice at the time in the last decades of the 19th century and the first decades of the 20th century. From Bela Bartok and Zoltan Kodali in Hungary to Edvard Grieg in Norway, and from Jón Leifs in Iceland and Ralph von Williams in England to Daniel Alomia Robles in Peru. These collectors, composers, promoted musical folk tradition. They recorded it and valorized it. Some of them wrote on it, but its most important value for them was a source not only as a source not only of inspiration, but a whole melodies and rhythms and musical forms that they drew on and incorporated into their own compositions. They translated music from the popular to the classical tradition. They transferred it between social classes, from the rural proletariat to the bourgeoisie and the cultured middle classes, from the field to the concert hall. Now, which Scottish composer should be added to this hall of fame? All the experts are here, right? I figured Alexander Mackenzie, is that, is that a good candidate? All right, you'll tell me afterwards. Now, in the case of our melody, Jón Auskissen's arrangement in the 1960s brought it popular success in the 1990s. Were it not for this guy, it's likely the song would now be found only on the pages of the 1906 collection and not on the lips of half the country's population. Thanks to him, a song about lost love entered first the choir chamber and then the nursery. 
From there, others carried it into film theaters, onto the TV screen, and into world music fame. But they did so without John Auskissen's permission and without expressly crediting him as the composer. They performed it always on the understanding and because it was a folk song. In addition to Hjalmar Haragnason and the film producers, Jon Auskisson and his lawyers took on several other artists in the 10-year period from 1995 to 2005. Musicians who arranged and recorded the song on everything from tourist CDs to the actual designer of the music box and from film to world music productions. The Icelandic artist Björk collaborated with French composer Hector Sazou on his album his world music album, Chanson des Mers Froides, or Songs from the Cold Seas, that Sony released in 1995, featuring traditional folk songs from the Arctic, from Alaska, Newfoundland, Greenland, Iceland, Japan, and Scandinavia, including shamanic incantations and indigenous lullabies from Inuits, Ainu, and Yakuts, and, as you might have guessed, Björk performed our song on the album. It was the album's most successful single and it was even licensed for use in TV commercials in the US. I am smarter than someone who wants to steal me from my family. My words can stop someone from hurting me. I am stronger than a 250 pound child molester. Brought to you by Tri-State Quality Ford Dealers and St. Barnabas Hospital, we urge you to help protect our children. Heard that. Think about the children. Now, Jon Auskissen had only one problem with all of this. He wasn't credited. He didn't get royalties for the commercial use of what he now maintained was actually not a folk song at all, but a song that he had composed. So when Eyjit Vilason graduate student of mine and a colleague called him up some years ago. He introduced himself and he explained that he was looking into folk songs and copyright and proceeded to request an interview with Jon about our song. And the first thing that Jon said on the telephone was, well, Actually, Viso Vassanderoso is not a folk song. Now, the odd thing is that he's not alone in this opinion, that the tune is not, or rather, that the tune is no longer a traditional tune. In 1997, the music rights organization, Stev, referred the question of his authorship to two musical experts. These handed down the verdict in short order, based on what I will just characterize as questionable criteria and leave it at that. Yes, they said. This song is, for all practical purposes, the creation of Jonauskisson, an original creation, notwithstanding the fact that he was born only in 1928, three years after Jon Leves publicly performed the song in his living room concert, 22 years after the good reverend published it in his compendium of Icelandic folk songs, and at least a good half century after that reverend learned the song as a young lad in the 1860s or 70s. Now at the top of the screen, you see a manuscript in Jon's own hand from the 1960s, where at the top right, the song is credited as an Icelandic folk song arranged by Jon At the bottom of the screen, 
you see printed music from that 2005. The reference to folk tradition has vanished. Jonauskison is credited as the composer. And at the bottom of the page, there's a copyright notice. All rights reserved in the name of Jonauskison. And legally, that is where things still stand. The case was never heard by a court. Björk, Hector Sazu, and Sony settled their disputes with Jonauskison out of court, as did the composer of the film score, Hjalmar Hauraknason. A number of other artists and labels have done the same. This means that no court has heard the case and no form of ruling has been handed down. I've spoken to artists who have attempted to contest Jon Auskisson's authorship and copyright in the melody before a court, but lawyers have advised them that because they are not themselves claiming copyright in the song and to be its authors, they will not be considered rightful parties to the case. In other words, since they can't claim that Jon Auskisson is appropriating their personal intellectual property, they have no case or are not a party to it. The problem here is that nobody, but nobody, is legally entitled to represent the musical tradition or the public domain. No person or legal entity can claim a lawful interest. This is a legal no man's land. And this I find exciting. The dispute surrounding this lullaby, Visu Vasandarosu, is fascinating to me for what it reveals about the shifting boundaries between authorship and its remainder or its outside. It's only one out of thousands of cases like it worldwide that have been reported from China and Norway, from the Solomon Islands and Ghana, from Greenland and Peru, Bolivia, Bulgaria, France, New Zealand, and so on and so forth. And these cases concern not only music, but they're also about traditional patterns and designs, dance, narratives, and medicinal knowledge. But music and medicine are the two most hotly debated arenas because that's where the money is, in two top dollar industries with a rather big profit margin, the pharmaceutical industry and the world music industry. Both base their profits on intellectual property rights. Both spend a lot of resources on legal departments that defend their rights and on lobbyists who extend their rights. When it comes to the collective resources that they exploit, however, traditional knowledge, traditional music, there is no one there to represent the other side. Folk tradition cannot retain a lawyer. So for over a decade, I've been tracking the work of an intergovernmental committee of the World Intellectual Property Organization in Geneva, or WIPO, and I've carried out field work at many of its meetings and interviewed various actors. I apologize for the self-indulgence, but this is supposed to represent my field work credentials of having been there. Established in the year 2000, WIPO's Committee on Intellectual Property, Traditional Knowledge, and Folklore owes its existence to dissatisfaction among poorer countries with a global imbalance of the intellectual property system and to pressure from developing states and indigenous NGOs. The problem at the heart of the work of this committee is that the system of intellectual property protection, which is supposed to encourage creativity and innovation, systematically excludes the knowledge and creativity of a rather large portion of humanity. In order to qualify for copyright protection, a work of art, a design, or a piece of music has to be an original creation. And likewise, in order to be granted patent protection, technology and know-how need to pass the test of novelty and involve an inventive step. Now, by means of criteria like these, 
traditional knowledge, traditional creative expressions are ruled out on principle. Now I'll leave the WIPO ethnography aside for today, and I want to present instead a critical history, a critical genealogy of this present conundrum we find. And that genealogy takes us back into the age of print, back into the Gutenberg parenthesis, if you will. The major milestone in the international history of copyright is the Berne Convention for the Protection of Literary and Artistic Works, signed in 1886. States that ratify the Berne Convention must guarantee the same level of protection to authors from other signatory countries as their national copyright laws grant to their own subjects. And they must also meet certain minimum standards in their national laws on authors' rights. The Berne Convention has been revised several times since it was first adopted, and one such revision from 1967 concerns folklore. As part of, and this is 1960s, this is the age of decolonization, of the entry of a plethora of new countries into the UN system with votes and a say in what was happening. And so as part of a development agenda at the revision conference in Stockholm that year, the Indian delegation proposed to extend the scope of the Berne Convention to include folklore in its scope of protection, a radical proposal, as folk tradition and folk tradition bearers had never before been considered appropriate beneficiaries of copyright. However, the special working group charged with proposing a text was stumped. It claimed at the end of the day that it couldn't establish what the devil folklore really was or even arrive at a reasonable definition of it with any consensus. But even so, its work, its deliberations left a trace in international law. The fruits of its labor are found in the rather opaque paragraph added to Article 15 and adapted in Stockholm in 1967, paragraph four. In the case of unpublished works where the identity of the author is unknown, but where there is ever ground to presume that he's a national of a country of the Union, that is of the Berne Convention, it shall be a matter for legislation in that country to designate the competent authority who shall represent the author and shall be entitled to protect and enforce his rights in the countries of the Union. Now step back and think about that. So indivisible is copyright from the norms of authorship that the Berne Convention can imagine traditional expression only as the work of an unknown author. In other words, by this reckoning, it is not so much the case that, say, Anderson, the great fairy tale writer, adopted stories from oral tradition, which he did, the stories that he himself said that he heard in the spinning room of his youth. Really, it's the oral storytellers, the old women in the spinning room, who repeat the original compositions of Anderson's colleagues in the Authors Guild, authors whose names the vagaries of history have separated from the stories that they composed. Now, this is symptomatic. The concept of creativity or of creative agency that underpins our modern regimes of copyright or intellectual property, the concept of how things are created is modeled on solitary genius. Canonized in international law in the 19th and 20th centuries, this romantic norm has no patience for cultural processes or for expressions developed in a more diffuse, incremental, and collective manner. 
where it's impossible to fix specific steps like invention or authorship at a given point in time and assign it to one biological person. Now, Article 15.4 further stipulates that it shall be a matter for legislation in that country to designate the competent authority which shall represent the author and shall be entitled to, to protect and enforce his rights in the countries of the Union. Now, what does this mean? After recasting tradition, after recasting folklore in terms that are legible under copyright regimes, that makes sense under copyright regimes, the special working group in Stockholm realizes that actually something has been lost in translation. They had cast creative agency in traditional expression and folklore in the mold of the universal individual subject as the unpublished work of an unknown author. The result is that we have a legal subject that has no recourse to representation. The subject is as void of a real reference as the empty subject it in the phrase it's raining. What's raining? It's another empty subject, right? The convention therefore hastens to fill that empty subject with the will of the state, which shall represent the author. Now the Berne Convention illustrates the relationship between copyright and traditional culture. The paradox that ties the one to the other while keeping them always apart has been the ongoing concern of the World Intellectual Property Organization since its founding. The solution adopted by Article 15.4 of the Berne Convention has not proved helpful to translate the collective, cumulative, and distributed creative agency of folk tradition by the concept of an unknown author. The unknown author from Article 15.4 is not unknown to us because his identity is lost. The unknown author is unknown to us because he does not exist. He's a legal fiction. And in fact, only one country, India, has actively taken this clause up into its national copyright laws. And again, in India, even in India, it has not proved useful. No case has been decided on this basis. Now, one of the enduring legacies of the Grimm brothers and of their contemporaries lies in how they mapped out this domain of collective creativity. And their work really inscribed that domain on the scholarly agenda. And their collections, and all the countless connect collections of folktales and legends that followed in their wake helped to make the existence of this domain of collective creation self-evident to us all. We're all brought up thinking of it as a natural thing. It's best understood, I think, as a domain within a new discursive regime in the 18th and 19th century whose figure is the author. In the same period, a legal regime took shape that complemented this regime for, for governing discourse, the law of copyright. In this context, we may say that the Grimm's helped to give a shape to these regimes by devising an instrument to carve up various different texts, a discursive field, into authored works on the one hand and non-authored texts on the other, copyrighted works and the public domain. In the dominant understanding of creativity in the 19th century, men penned original works, bourgeois men, to be more precise, or aristocrats, or even the odd social climber, like Anderson. Men ruled in the domain of authorship. The place of women was in the outside, the constitutive outside of that domain, in the residue of authorship, 
in what came to be known as folklore or folk tradition. Women were portrayed not as authors, but as gossips. Their artistry was oral, not literary. They didn't create originals, they copied and they repeated. And they shared their outsider status with peasants, with children, and with colonial populations. Women, children, and peasants all come together in the genre of the folktale, as it was modeled in the Grimm's folktale collection, the Kinder and Hausmärchen. The tale culled from its peasant sources and told in the bourgeois nursery, in the heart of the private sphere, the dominion of women. Told by a mother, or better yet, by a grandmother to a group of children. The peasants were represented as naive and childlike, and so were the women. Now this imagery is clearly a product of a paternalistic and a patriarchal relationship to those dominated in society, to the subaltern, if you like. All these groups, the peasants, the women, the children, are imagined collectively rather than individually. Unlike the authors of the time, and unlike the editors of folktale collections, storytellers are rarely mentioned by name in any of the folktale collections edited and published in the 19th and most of the 20th century. Not by the Grimm's and not in the other collections that followed in their wake. Instead, storytellers figure always as collective sources. The area where they live is often mentioned. And still, we are led to assume their class and very often their gender. Now there is, however, an important exception that illustrates this rule, and we owe it to the Grimm's. Not only did the Grimm's map out this domain of collective creativity, folklore, they also illustrated creative agency in that domain, literally. They gave a face to what I've called the constant muse. The face of the folk from whom the tales emanate is the face of Dorothea Fiemann, the Grimm's, as the Grimm's presented her to their readers in the second volume of Kinder and Hausmärchen from 1815, and I quote their introduction. One of these happy pieces of good fortune was the acquaintance with a peasant woman from the village of Zvern near Kassel. Through her, we acquired a good part of the tales that are published here. This woman, still vigorous and not much over 50, is called Fiemann. She has a firmly set, pleasant face with bright, clear eyes and was probably beautiful when she was young. She has these stories clearly in mind, a gift which she says is not given to everyone. Now, as Grimm scholars have pointed out, the brothers tailed Dorothea Fiemann to suit an idealized image of their contributors, the image that the readers were to carry away with them from their collection. Literally so, as her portrait illustrated the second volume of the Grimm's Tales as of 1819, drawn by a third brother, Ludwig Emil Grimm. Now, Dorothea Fiemann's portrait really struck a chord. When Edgar Taylor translated the Grimm's collection of tales into English, he published a selection or a bestseller that he called Gammer Gretel. Pictured on the title page, old Gretel was none other than Dorothea Fiemann, her features slightly softened, whom Taylor had turned into a source for all the Grimm's tales and described as, quote unquote, an honest, good-humored farmer's wife who a while ago lived far off in Germany and knew all the good stories told in that country. Now, with echoes of the 1001 Nights in Sherezade, Gamma Gretel tells the stories in Taylor's books on 12 successive evenings. Now, Dorothea Fiemann, the person, died near the end of 1815. 
But over the next century, her name and her image traveled with the Grimm's Tales around the world and became synonymous with folk tradition. It helped, of course, that in a way she was already well known, if by another name. Dorothea Fiemann so easily transformed into Gamma Gretel because the Grimm's presented her from the outside, outset as an idealized storyteller. And that ideal went back at least as far as Charles Perrault's 1697 collection of tales, Conte de ma mère Loire, Mother Goose. And Mother Goose, an older woman in peasant clothing, is pictured in Perrault's frontispiece. Mother Goose stood model for countless frontispieces to 19th century collections of fairy tales, as Maria Tatar has shown. The frontispiece pictures the constant muse, who is a muse for creative writers and authors who turn her work, who turn tradition into copyrighted original pieces, perhaps not changing very much at all. So when Anderson credits the old women in the spinning room, the poor old women in the spinning room, with revealing to him, quote unquote, a world as rich as that of the Thousand and One Nights, Anderson is actually inscribing himself into a time-worn tradition, no less so than when he, his version of Lucky Hands or The Princess on the Pea is published, based on something already published in other folktale collections. So like Anderson's old women, Perrault's mother goose is seated, by, is seated by a spindle, and so are countless other anonymous storytellers pictured in fairy tale collections in the 19th century and to this day. An image of an elderly peasant woman by a spindle or a spinning wheel became the entry point to the world of printed fairy tales. And so magical transformation carries over from folklore to the folklore about folklore, or the metafolklore. Mother Goose transforms magically to Dorothea Fiemann, who becomes Gamma Gretel, who becomes the Märchen Mütterchen, the fairy tale mother, and so on. By the time Anderson reminisces in his autobiography about the old women in the spinning room at whose feet he sat as a child, the poor old woman with a spindle is already a ubiquitous icon in fairy tale literature. Now, if Dorothea Fiemann is one of the many avatars of Mother Goose, she is no doubt the one best known by name. In 1819, her face in Ludwig Grimm's frontispiece was still in part her own, that of the woman from Niedersven whom he had sketched in 1814, a year after his brothers came into contact with her. But in 1837, in the third edition of the same collection of Kinder and Hausmärchen, two years before Taylor published Gamma Gretel, a legend appears in large print below her portrait. It's one word, Märchenfrau, fairy tale lady. This transformation from the individual to the generic is the birthmark of the constant muse. She is constant because she is dehistoricized. No one in particular, she can stand in for everyone. She is a muse because she is denied creative agency. As a vessel of tradition, she gives inspiration to others, the authors and the poets who create artistic tales, Kunstmärchen from the Volksmärchen, Kunstpoesie from the Naturpoesie. She is the counterpart to the author who represents all that he, she does not, who is male, not female, bourgeois, not a peasant, educated, not simple, cosmopolitan, and not parochial, original, and not a faithful imitator, skilled only in reproducing tradition. 
Above all, the author is an individual, not a face merely standing in for a collective. Ludwig Katzenstein's fabulous image from 1892 juxtaposes Grimm's frontispiece of Fiemann with a famous portrait of the brothers Grimm and embeds both in a stock scene from visual folklore. The scientific collectors, scholars, and editors are portrayed face to face with the folk, sitting in Dorothea Fiemann's home and hanging on her every word, surrounded by well-behaved children and poultry, both listening eagerly. These editors, I think, occupy an interesting position in between the folk and the author. In the interstices, between two discursive domains, and one, one might say in the wound opened up by their division between folk tradition and authorship, by the rupture between tradition and modernity, if you like. The collector editor is a certified translator between these domains. He's an adventurer traveling into the hinterlands of tradition to cull its last remaining treasures and to carry them back across the ontological borders of modernity. As a matter of fact, as a matter of the historical record, that is, it was Dorothea Fiemann who paid visits to the Grimms in their home and not the other way around. She was the border crossing adventurer. As far as we know, they never set a foot in her home. But Katzenstein's illustration from 1892, much later, reflects late 19th century opinion on the activities of the Grimms. Its inverted representation of historical events speaks to the stability of our regime of authorship by the end of 19th century, how firmly the positions of the folk, the author, and the collector editor had settled by then. So this is my genealogy, and a genealogy like the ones whose outlines I've been sketching this evening helps, I think, to investigate the various systems of subjection that are hidden in plain view in our legal regimes, in our discursive regimes. The point is to uncover layers of past meanings and concepts that the institution of authorship and the institution of copyright have invested with power. Concepts that are, are at work in the world every day and govern the way texts and sounds circulate and images. So in so doing, we shed critical light on those understandings of creativity that really control the circulation of culture. And we open the door, hopefully, or that is the point, to alternative ways of conceiving creative agency, how creation happens, moving beyond these two figures of the author and the folk. In an age of file sharing and peer-to-peer -peer networking, of social media and web 2.0, of mashups and remixes, we really need a new language to speak of creation, to speak of creative agency, how it happens, who does it. Historically, folklore offered an alternative to authorship. Folklore is peer-to-peer. -peer. It's collaborative. It's cumulative. But the choice between these two options is just not satisfactory. We should not accept it uncritically. We have to try to imagine creativity differently and to think in other terms about creative processes that are collective, incremental, and distributed in space and time because such creative processes are in fact all around us. They are the norm, they are not the exception. How many people do you imagine wrote the text on the back of the box of cereals you had for breakfast? How many did the graphic illustration? 
How many people did it take to, watch, to create the movie you watched last night? The language of folklore almost captures creative processes and products like these more accurately than the language of authorship. Neither is accurate, however, I hasten to add. Both are patently false because each is based on the exclusion of the other, on the opposite. But to construct a new language, we need first to understand the concepts, the discursive grid we are revising, so we don't wind up reproducing the same old antagonisms with a new vocabulary. What we need is not a new vocabulary, but a new grammar, an alternative grammar of creativity, and a renewed understanding of how cultural expressions come into being are modified, changed, and circulate. So here is a final thought. How about the collector-editor? Could we model an alternative understanding of creative agency on the figure of the folklorist? Now, notwithstanding the immodesty of such a proposal, what possibilities would such an understanding open up? What new perspectives? What if every cultural actor, individual, collective, is acting much like the Brothers Grimm when they collected and compiled and published the Kinder and Hausmärchen. The rapper, right? the storyteller, the singer, the author, the programmer, the poet, the mashup and contributor to YouTube, the guy cracking jokes at the office party, the student plagiarizing another paper, everyone that is. What if we think of culture as a republic of editors, some of them more like Jakob, the scientist of the two brothers, others more artistically inclined, like Wilhelm. We would be taking away from authorship and folk tradition their powerful hold on our imaginations, because their power, in effect, depends on their dichotomous relation and their exclusion of one another. By reframing the interstitial position as a central category, we challenge the untenable dichotomy that still channels our understanding of creation. In redefining the borderlands as the center, we define the author and the folk as peripheral concepts, as the exceptions, not the norms. Or better yet, as fictional labels on either end of a spectrum, with most texts, most music, most images falling not on either end, but somewhere in between. And the in-between is the domain of the collector-editor who builds on previous creations. So this, this is one perspective on creativity and the circulation of culture. As such, it is neither true nor false. It's only helpful or unhelpful. It might not have flattered Anderson and it might not make our lullaby composer, Jon Auskisson, too happy. But to me, at least, the curious case of melodies that are composed a century after they are first collected makes more sense if we consider their, if we consider their historical trajectories and transformations as a series of editorial interventions. Now, in 1997, my mentor, the folklorist Alan Dundies, asked, who are the folk? His answer was radical at the time and still rings true. Among others, we are, but so is everyone else. But why not turn it around? The inverse is equally true, I think. 
Who are the folklorists? Who are the Grimm's? Well, among others, we are. But so is everybody else. I'm proposing, in other words, an alternative model of creativity, a model in which creation is not a single act, but a cumulative process, a model in which creative acts don't exist outside of history, but are historical. They take place over time. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth is still the model for creation outside of history, outside of history. A model in which creative agency is not modeled as individual, but as collective or social, where the figures of the author and the folk are not mistaken for empirical realities, but provide instead two imaginary points on the compass of creative agency. Like East and West, they give a name to cardinal directions, with reference to which we can map out different places or different texts and describe their relationship to one another. East and West are not themselves places, they describe a relation. You can go west, but you will never be west. There is always more west to the west of the west. Now, let's go back to the Greeks where we began, remember. The most interesting figure in this slide, I would suggest, is neither Zeus, nor Echo, nor even Athena, or Athena. It is I wonder if I have a pointer. Yes, it's this guy here, Hephaestus. Wielding his hammer, Hephaestus is an agent of creative destruction. He is a master craftsman. He is a bricoleur par excellence. He takes stuff, and with his tools, he makes new stuff out of it. Nothing comes from nothing. Hephaestus is a collector editor of things. His last name is Grimm. His hammer itself is a creation that is distributed, incremental, social, it's historical, it took place over time. No one would dream of searching for the author of the hammer. The absurdity of that proposal, I think, is self-evident to us all. So why should texts or sounds or images be any different? I would also suggest that the hammer is a tool of critical scholarship. With this hammer, Hephaestus cracks open the skull of the author figure, whose death certificate a literary scholar, Roland Barthes, issued 50 years ago already in his essay on the death of the author. But now, now let's use his hammer to craft something interesting and useful from the pieces of the skull. To end again in mythology, but going north this time to, to my native Iceland in the Eddas, the sky was actually crafted from the skull of the primeval giant. Can we do something like that with the author? Thank you.
This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.